If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 148. We are about to sit down with psychologist Michelle Gelfand. I'm ready to rock and roll. Oh, good. Well, let's rock and roll. Let me get my guitar. Okay. (laughs) So my name is Michelle Gelfand. I'm a professor at the University of Maryland in College Park, and I'm uh, a cross-cultural psychologist. So I look at universal and culture-specific aspects of uh, human behavior all around the world and within the United States uh, and use a wide variety of methods from field and lab and computational neuroscience methods to understand all things cultural. Gelfin directs the Culture Lab at the University of Maryland, where they study the strength of cultural norms, as well as negotiation, conflict, revenge, forgiveness, and diversity. In the interview, we will discuss her new book, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. In the book, Michelle presents her research into norms and presents a fascinating new idea It isn't norms themselves that predict how cultures will react, evolve, innovate, and engage in conflict, but how cultures value their own norms. She categorizes all human cultures into two kinds, tight or loose, and argues that all human behavior depends on whether a person lives in a tight culture or a loose culture. unspoken rules of behavior and shared social conventions that we just sort of follow and perform without really thinking about why we do that. For instance, we shake hands with strangers, we applaud at performances and after speeches. And unless you live in Morocco, Thailand, Yemen, Tunisia, Turkey, or the Maldives, you probably put a tree inside your living room last year, decorated it with tinsel and lights, put gifts wrapped in paper underneath which no one was allowed to open, and then watched it slowly die before a special day when it was okay to tear open the paper and reveal what was inside. Then you took off the decoration, threw away the tree, or if it was artificial, you stored it for next year, and returned your living room to normal. 
You probably put socks on your feet today instead of your hands. You ate with a fork instead of a hammer. You drank coffee with breakfast instead of wine. And even when you're alone, you do that sort of thing with no one watching. You follow all these rules of behavior, engaging in the sort of behavior you consider normal. Normal. That's the thing. Norms are the behaviors we consider normal. And the different normative influences of our different cultures tell us what is and is not normal or acceptable behavior. For instance, it's perfectly reasonable to wear a tuxedo to the prom, but not to a baseball game. It's perfectly okay to invite a clown to a children's birthday party, but not to a funeral. Why? Well, you can argue there's no real reason why. It's just habits that built up over time in our cultures, but that's not the case. There is a reason why. Norms serve a valuable function. In the book, Gelfin explains that evolution shaped our brain so that we are naturally and biologically programmed to conform to normative influence. Studies show that infants prefer hand puppets that engage in our most fundamental socially normative behaviors, like helping others to open a box full of toys instead of preventing others from opening that box, or worse still, opening the box and stealing the toys before the others could get to them. By age three, children will openly and vocally sanction other children who do things that are considered taboo in their cultures by saying, no, no, you aren't supposed to do that. This predilection for creating and following norms makes us unique among animals. No other creature engages in behavior for purely normative reasons. Studies of non-human primates and children who together are taught how to drop a ball into one of three boxes to get a reward will copy the behavior no problem. But if they are then shown by another of their species that dropping the ball into a different box will also give you the reward, only human children will switch to the new box. Other studies have shown this as well. Only humans will conform to the behavior of others just for the sake of conformity. Even if the conformity is irrelevant, even if the behaviors require us to violate the truth of our own senses or better judgment, even if those behaviors harm ourselves or others. Why? Because norms serve a vital function. Human cultures develop norms to solve communal problems, to reach goals, and to deal with group threats. They unite us, they allow us to quickly and nearly effortlessly coordinate, and they help us to cooperate. They are heuristical. We perform them automatically and intuitively. And the origin of most of our norms was to deal with some problem of collective action in the past. And since doing the thing the norm demands keeps society bound together, we keep doing them, even if we don't really notice them or understand why we do. So, yes, back to the topic at hand, tight and loose cultures. Gelfin says in her book that the major difference between all cultures is how people react when someone violates a norm. For instance, in most of the United States, if you do wear a tuxedo to a baseball game, people will just think of you as quirky. They might even reward you for it with praise and attention. If you violate a more sacred norm, say you wear a clown costume to a funeral, you might get publicly shamed, but you're not going to be flogged or stoned. And it's not unlikely that somewhere right now, someone is having a funeral where everyone is wearing clown costumes. The United States is a loose culture. 
we are perfectly okay with someone dressed as Darth Vader playing a tuba while riding a unicycle pedaling down a sidewalk. But in places like Singapore, things are different. In 1994, an American teenager was sentenced there to four months in jail and a public caning for throwing eggs at cars. Singapore is a tight culture. Even the lightest violations of norms bring strict sanctions. Spitting on the street or not flushing a public toilet will get you a $1,000 fine. Strictly enforced. There's no drinking of alcohol between 10.30 p.m. and 7 a.m. Strictly enforced. Singing an obscene song in public is punishable by prison. Smuggling drugs is punishable by death. And none of this is considered an overreach in that culture. In the book, Gelfin explains how this tightness or looseness develops. You'll hear all about this in the interview, but the short version is that cultures tighten up when they face threats. And those threats can be ecological, like food shortages or natural disasters, or they can be human and historical, like invaders and wars and economic collapse. When resources are tight or they are in danger of being lost, cultures become rule makers. When resources are plentiful and the threats are few, they become rule breakers. And there are drawbacks and benefits to both. And the dynamic within and between tight and loose cultures explains a great deal of the mysteries of human social conflict and evolution. And you will hear all about that in the interview after this break. If you are always on the hunt for fresh, fascinating insights about the world, you will love The Great Courses Plus. This online streaming service offers in-depth information on an exclusive, extensive variety of topics. Virtually anything you could be interested in, you can find a way to learn more about it with The Great Courses Plus. Science, history, philosophy, psychology, even photography, learning a new language, math, anything. The information is reliable and presented in a truly engaging way by experts who are not only knowledgeable, but so passionate about their subjects, it oozes with authenticity and expertise. There are thousands of lectures to explore with The Great Courses Plus, and you can watch or listen to any of them all on your schedule. I really enjoyed their course, Your Deceptive Mind. I mean, it is a cornerstone of the stuff we talk about here in this show, and Your Deceptive Mind even uses You Are Not So Smart as a source in some of the lecture topics. It offers a fascinating look at how our brains work to construct our sense of reality, how we process information and misinformation, and how we can better learn to become stronger critical thinkers. 
This is a course taught by Professor of Neuroscience at the Yale School of Medicine, Dr. Stephen Novella. He's been on the show before. He is a master of critical thinking. And in the course, you'll get answers to what should you think? What should you believe? Could you be deceiving yourselves? Questions that all critical thinkers of any age must constantly ask themselves. You get 24 lectures. They're about 30 minutes long each. You get the necessity of thinking about thinking, the neuroscience of belief, Errors of perception, flaws and fabrications of memory. That's just the first few. You also get culture and mass delusions, philosophy and the presuppositions of science, the many different kinds of pseudoscience, science versus pseudoscience, experts and scientific consensus. It's just great. This is the course that I recommend everyone start out with. This is a course that I think you should listen to if you've ever enjoyed a single episode of this show and you can get it for, well, let me tell you. As one of my listeners, you can sample The Great Courses Plus for free, free. You can get this for free. The course I just described, listen to it for free. Watch it for free. With unlimited access to learn about anything, you can start your free trial right now at The Great Courses Plus by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Get this for free. I actually really do love it. It's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McRaney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and this is our interview with psychologist Michelle Gelfand. So let's just get started with this question, which I want to know, um, and it's good to start at first principles, what are norms? So norms are this omnipresent uh, but invisible force that is affecting you know much of our lives without us realizing it. Uh, formally speaking, they're really unwritten, sometimes codified rules for behavior. Um, and what's fascinating is, of course, all groups have norms. Uh, and in fact, we constantly follow norms. We're on what I call normative autopilot a lot of the time. We don't even recognize how much our behavior from the moment we're waking up to the moment we go to sleep is influenced by these unwritten rules. And also what's even more fascinating, and I write about this in Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, is just how much we need norms. So they're omnipresent, they're invisible, but we really need them. And they also vary tremendously across cultures. And they, moreover, they evolve for good reasons. They, the differences mm. evolve for good reasons and they have very predictable consequences uh, in, in my research. So it's it's a really exciting way to kind of think about how we're profoundly influenced by something that is invisible but super important. Mm-hmm. So where do these norms come from? Like, um, I there's all sorts of ways to try to make sense of this, and a lot of them try to remove. They try to be very blank slate about it. So I'm interested in thinking in terms of biology and adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, like, why would this be a feature of human cognition? Where do they come from and what function do they serve? So so norms are a miracle, I'd say. <laughs> and I think they're just the, one of the most important inventions of, of humans um, because they enable us to predict each other's behavior and to coordinate at an unprecedented level. And they give us a sense of identity. I mean, if you think about it, the way to think about norms and how important they are and the functions they serve is to imagine a world without norms. I write about this in the book. I mean, imagine you wake up and you walk outside and people are driving on either side of the street, not obeying stop signs or stoplights. 
you know, you go to um, restaurants and people are stealing food from each other's plates and burping loudly. And you go to libraries, people are singing and they're shouting. There's just so many contexts every day where we are abiding by norms and it helps us to coordinate incredibly. And um, this has been something that humans have been doing for millennia. So norms have been part of our history for as long as we've been on Earth, as long as we've had to be interdependent and coordinate, we need these kind of unwritten rules to help predict each other's behavior. And in the book, and we'll talk about it later, I talk about why some groups need stronger rules than others, why it makes sense to have, in some cases, tighter cultures, and some cases, looser cultures, and that they have important consequences. And so it's really, once you start thinking about norms, you can't stop thinking about them. If, if I, you go outside, you start thinking about how many norms you're following all the time, you start noticing when people are violating norms um, on trains, you know, in libraries, everywhere, especially in looser cultures where that happens a lot. Um, and so it becomes something that you start realizing is so important. And and it's also so deeply part of our um, our history and our and our psyche. Another question when it comes to norms is that are we biologically predispositioned to uh, generate them and to uh, receive them and to behave in ways that in accordance with them? Or are they purely a invention, a purely a uh, innovation that then took off once it was uh, adopted widely? It's a great question. And, you know, what's really interesting is how little we know about that question. You know, in, in some of our work, when we've recently been looking at the neuroscience of social norm violation detection, it's clear that there's very little work on this of how norms get embrained. And we're starting to use EEG and fMRI techniques. We've published some studies on this to, to look at what's happening in terms of the brain mechanisms and, and norms and norm violations. We do know, though, that, you know, even as early as infancy, that there is uh, evidence that infants are starting to show a lot of normative types of behaviors. So for example, people have shown that infants indicate a clear preference for, for puppets, meaning like they reach for them. That's how that's measured in this research. When they see puppets engaging in normative behavior, when they see puppets, for example, helping other puppets, and they don't reach for puppets that are doing kind of nasty things, you know, that are beating up other puppets or that are engaging in, you know, other kind of antisocial behavior. And, and of course, later on, by the time we're three, we could see that children are actively trying to berate norm violators, you know, when they're interacting with, again, puppets who are doing sort of nasty stuff, they start to disapprove of them. So this, mm. this is really happening really early, even before formal language, which suggests that there is an adaptation, you know, that we could see that humans have, we're able to, I would argue, in a sort of culture co-evolution perspective, that we're able to um, adapt to rules and norms, um, particularly in some context, um, would be having some kind of advantage. Okay. Well, and I love any question that ends up with, I don't know, maybe, we'll <laughs> see. Uh, we're working on that. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's remarkable because, you know, you talk about Western psychology and I like to joke that if we started psychology in China or in Singapore or in other cultures that are where norms are really important and they're more tight, that we'd know a lot more about them. Uh, you know, in the United States, we focus on personality and individual differences and all sorts of individualistic, methodological mm. types of issues versus trying to, for example, understand like what are the what are the top categories of norms that we need to study? What are, what are the what are the top five situational contexts, like a big five of personality? We don't really know that. I mean, it's clearly starting to evolve um, 
people like David Funder have a great new handbook on social situations. Um, so it's evolving. And it's, clearly, there's a huge, uh, incredible uh, amount of activity happening now in terms of norm psychology. Uh, I've been um, working with people in all sorts of disciplines from biology to anthropology to history to neuroscience and computational um, computer science to, to look at norms. And it's really starting to take hold. So but it's taken a while. And that's where the we don't know comes from. But, you know, in 10 yeah. years, we'll know a lot more. And it's yeah. really exciting new um, meta theoretical field. I think that's developing in a very interesting interdisciplinary way. Yeah, I love that this is where psychology is at right now. I mean, uh, I'm not phased by the replication crisis because uh, I look at it and think, uh, well, that's science doing what science does. Uh, well, I, I would say also that this idea of replication has been something that cross-cultural psychologists have been talking about for decades. I mean, yeah. I wrote a chapter some years ago, maybe 20 years ago, that talked about all the ways that your stuff might not replicate when you take your Western theory and measure and just export it to Japan or to Iraq. And cross-cultural psychologists, including, you know, in 1980, there was a huge methodology handbook of many, many different volumes on how do you do cross-cultural research and come to conclusions um, that are, you know, based on, you know, it, in, in, a, in a sense, there's so many ways that things won't replicate that have nothing to do with the actual research question. It could be things like translations. It could be how people interact differently with an experimenter. I mean, there's so many ways that things won't replicate. And, you know, cross-cultural psychology has been saying that we have to be very careful about this. There's very small ways in which things might not replicate. And, you know, I think what's fascinating is to see people now starting to look at that and I think we need to really be very cognizant that we need to work together to figure out how might something very small have made something not replicate because cross-cultural psychologists have been talking about this for decades and yeah. they've partnered together to see like, okay, when things are not replicating, what's causing it? Is it really that the theory's wrong? Is it that the research question is, you know, really bogus <laughs> or is it just some really small methodological artifact? And I think there's a lot that people can learn from cross-cultural writing on this topic. Yeah, that's true. And it's, um, I think I what I like about it the most is that it, it's almost a reset button, or I guess it, I mean, to like, you're right, like going back to the beginning and like, if we were thinking cross-culturally from the beginning, Heine said something like it was, uh, he said, it feels almost like all of psychology is based off studying one you know, organism. Um, like if, if biology was based off of studying one organism, I think we said in the show something like, uh, it'd be like if biology up to this point had been based off of one single cave spider <laughs> and, and then like, um, and then they're like, Oh wait, there's lots of species we can like explore because we spent so much time with, um, the Western undergraduate student, um, as our, as our research subject. Yeah. And, um, I find that I find it super, um, encouraging to think, Oh my God, there's so much meat on the bone. Yeah. It's actually, you know, from a metaphor, you could think about it in psychometrics as, you know, so clearly there'll be some stuff that's relevant, that's universal when we look at things across cultures, but some of it will be contaminated, meaning that it's like what we've studied here doesn't apply to other places. And what's really missing, and I think this is where a lot of us, um, are, are we ha really have to move in this direction, is what's deficient? You know, why would it be that a five-factor scale on personality would necessarily capture every element of personality in Egypt, for example? Like it might, there might be a sixth dimension that we haven't looked at. You know, what's fascinating is to look at construct deficiency and construct contamination. And there's some really awesome research out there. I reviewed it in the annual review of psych chapter that we did on cross-cultural organizational 
psychology where you can look at, okay, even a construct like organizational citizenship behavior, you know, is clearly some of the dimensions of that construct, which were developed in the U.S., We'll generalize to China, but when the studies in China show that some are not relevant and then they're missing really important elements. And that's really where I think the most exciting um, kind of work is done, where we kind of move, we, we use um, our samples and other cultures to expand the construct space, to refine what is universal and what's, what we need to add and what's, um, you know, so that, so it's new that really we're missing. And that's what's really exciting. And that, and that requires collaborations and research teams and people who are really <clears throat> working together and doing qualitative and quantitative work and, and lots of methods to try to really expand our mm, constructs. I dig it. Um, well, let's, let's get into your book. Um, I want to see, I want to build a very quick foundation. We've already talked about what norms are. I'm wondering, and this is going to be a weird question, but you think about all these norms that we, that interplay with one another and that everyone is adhering to and sanctioning each other and all these things. Is that what culture is, or is and what I'm asking is, do cultures, you know, generate norms, or is it, or is it that the cultures really are just a collection of norms in the first place? Well, I think you know it's really both. I mean, clearly cultures create norms. We could see in the same kind of domain of behavior, like even what communication people call proxemics, how closely we stand to each other varies very dramatically around the world. You know, when you're in Latin America, and not in all places, but many, you know, people are standing much closer to each other as compared to in the United States and uh, in East Asia. And so that's where you can see cultural differences exist a lot in the same exact types of domains. Uh, and But at the same time, you know, you can change norms to change cultures. I, I've, I've been doing some of this in even contexts like in hospitals where you try to create new norms of organizing that might actually create more collaborative, well-functioning cultures. So it, it really is mutually kind of constitutive. Um, how does one go about creating a norm? Because when it, um, I know that's a very big question, but the, the thing is, I think about a lot of activism and a lot of politics, you know, often a lot of arguments that we have on the internet, you know, kind of boil down to someone is really wishing that the other party adhered to a different set of norms or that they saw things in a certain way mm. where they would they would realize that the norms to which you subscribe are valid and rational and mm. reasonable and better and that they're more useful or they're less harmful than whatever the other person is doing or whatever the other person's subculture is doing, right? And we were seeing this kind of stuff happen daily right now in American politics, but it's always part of our life as civilizations move from like whether slavery was normal, you know, and then and then it became extremely not normal. And I think sometimes about what, you know, if you were to take somebody who lived in a period of slavery in the United States and you put them in a time machine and then you took them to now and you dumped them out, like, what would they do? Would they argue with people? Would they very quickly assimilate? Yeah, this is a really fascinating question. I think it's, you know, it's really, very complicated because it involves both bottom-up processes of like, constant communication and persuasion. Uh, it involves both, you know, kind of normative descriptive norm information of how many people are doing something versus the kind of injunctive norms that Cialdini talks about. But it also could be very much top-down driven. And I've seen, you know, leaders and organizations, as an example, <clears throat> who directly try to change norms and try and, and, and realize that they have to really get buy-in and show people why changing a norm would really be important for their own well-being. And so I think it's really a combination of bottom-up and top-down types of processes. It, of course, varies tremendously depending on the culture that you're in. In our computational models, we could see that 
even when you introduce a new norm into a population, which means that it has higher economic value, it takes much longer to take uh, to kind of gain momentum and be adopted in groups that are very tight as compared to loose, where change is more incremental, change is much more catastrophic in, in tighter cultures where there's much more conformist pressures. So that's all to say that there's a huge amount of really cool work going on right now on how do you change norms, both from a bottom-up and top-down oh perspective. So uh, in the book, uh, you in the very beginning, you 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 talk a little bit about how norms uh, what they are, how we're affected by them, their sort of their purpose, or their well, not necessarily their purpose, but their function. Um, and you sort of breeze through a, a little bit and talk about how they can. There's actually lots of different kinds of norms, and you 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 mentioned codified, mundane, unspoken, and ritualistic. I I, I think this kind of stuff is usually really fun because um, when you hear them, you'll be like, ah, yes, they are. There are different kinds, and I I subscribe to all of these. Yeah. So uh, just run us through the different kinds of norms, codified versus mundane, unspoken versus explicit, ritualistic versus, you know, all that stuff. Sure. So, you know, a code of norms are really like sort of a cluster or, you know, kind of a constellation of rules around certain categories of behavior. And in fact, um, in my research for the book, I found that, you know, the oldest code of norms is found in the Code of Hammurabi which is this sort of well-preserved Babylonian code of ancient rules in Mesopotamia. It was around 1754 BC when it uh, has been discovered to date back to. And what's interesting there is you can see that, you know, there, this huge number of rules, codified rules, were, you know, organized around transactions and contracts and family and household responsibilities and other types of rules that were really one of the first evidence that humans were really like taking these rules and writing them down and, and organizing them into clusters. Uh, of course, we have a lot of sort of mundane rules that we, you know, everyday rules we abide by, like saying hello and goodbye when we wait, when we're on the phone, uh, putting clothes on, <clears throat> things like that. But in general, you know, many cultures um, in our research of traditional societies have rules for a variety of categories like language and communication, how we deal with authority, how we dress, how we eat, clearly things like gender and sexuality, public etiquette, and so forth. So there's some universal sort of domains of rules. Um, rituals are really interesting because they're kind of sequences of rules that um, are organized to help bond groups together. Um, and so they involve many different types of rules that are typically coordinated in some interesting sequence. Um, you think about Halloween as kind of a ritual, for example, that you know, kids, you know, getting dressed up and all sorts of weird costumes and we don't usually let them go and just bang on strangers' doors on a daily basis and ask for food. You know, I've always wanted to do that the day after Halloween and see how people react, you know, because it's a certain sequence of appropriate behavior that's accepted on a particular time of the year for a particular reason um, and with particular <clears throat> kind of rules around, you know, that sequence. I'm looking at this and I'm thinking... Um... What do we know about norms in non-humans and in non-human primates? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there's a fascinating field looking at, you know, cultures and animals and rules, you know, and, and other types of normative, you know, kinds of um, evidence of some normative type of behavior. But what we do know is that, you know, as far as we know, um, other species don't abide by norms that are just symbolic, that just are because people are trying to fit into the group. They tend to follow what others are doing because of instrumental reasons, because it might help them get better food or better mates or things like that. So humans seem to be, and again, researchers, the jury's out on this, but they seem to be um, 
different in terms of our symbolic types of processes involved in norms. Also, um, clearly, just our ability to develop huge systems of norms that help us scale up our behavior and, and um, you know, basically um, transmit these kinds of norms across generations and so forth. So there, I wouldn't say that, you know, animals certainly are absolutely remarkable, other species, um, and there's certainly a lot of social learning that goes on in animals, but it tends to be uniquely related to instrumental types of purposes. Yeah, what, and what do you think of, like, uh, I've read lots of places to just say, like, Culture doesn't exist among animals, that it's all local enhancement and things like that, where they're just um, copying behaviors that'll get them stuff they want, but it's not actually, there's no takeoff, there's no accumulation. Like, um, is is there truth to that? Well, you don't see like chimpanzees, you know, with elaborate wedding ceremonies, for example, <laughs> or, or, you know, so I think that there's some, a lot of truth to that, you know, that... Um, Clearly, that I think it's important to respect, you know, the incredible uh, advances that you see in animal species and, and, and so forth, but also recognizing that um, we, are, we definitely have unique capabilities that help us scale up, transmit, um, and um, engage in normative behavior to produce unbelievable types of accomplishments. Um, so I do think that they are distinct. Yeah. And how early do human beings t- seem to notice and adhere to norms? You mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I'd like to ask the question directly. Yeah, I, you know, it's fascinating. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, there's studies of infants that show that infants, um, even without any formal language ability, uh, indicate clear preferences for, in this case, puppets that they're interacting with that are engaging in normative ways that are helping other puppets as compared to not reaching for puppets that are doing all sorts of antisocial types of things. And then it's, it's later that we see, even by age three, that we see that, you know, infant, that, that toddlers are starting to actively berate puppets who are violating norms. I've been studying this also across different cultural groups, in particular the working class and upper class, and I, and, and I see big differences even by age three in how these groups are interacting with puppets violating norms. So these, these things happen really early. I mean, it's remarkable to start seeing this stuff happening with infants um, who are attentive to what's happening in the social environment and then starting to reinforce it. You introduced something very interesting, and uh, you know I've seen this framed in I've seen, I've seen like whiffs of this framed in different ways, but I've never seen it framed the way you do. And uh, your research is unique. Um, we're talking about norms and how they 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 you know cultures are they're the glue of culture. Um, but you write about uh, in your book that broadly speaking, we can categorize cultures into either being tight cultures or loose cultures. So if you could walk us through, what do you mean by that? Sure. You know, I mean, I think as a cross-cultural psychologist traveling the world and, you know, I see so many interesting distinctions of like, you know, you go to Singapore and you're not allowed to bring large quantities of gum into the country and you could get fined for things like not flushing the public toilet or walking in front of your curtains naked. (laughs) It's actually on the statute or, you know, in other places like in New Zealand, which are much more lax, you have, you know, people walking barefoot in banks and you have them burning couches on college campuses. You see all sorts of differences in, in rule abidance around the world. In Germany, for example, where people tend to walk, wait patiently on sidewalks, even if there's no cars around as compared to in my home city of New York, where people are constantly jaywalking and, you know, with kids in tow. And I started to think about this distinction of, you know, all cultures have rules. They have these norms for behavior, but some groups tend to have much tighter rules and much stronger punishments for deviance. And this is 
uh, distinction tighten loose that was first introduced in the late 60s by um, Pelto, an anthropologist, who started to look at this in traditional societies. But it then kind of got left off the map. Um, you know, we, including myself, started to study things like collectivism and individualism, you know, how much you emphasize family versus independence and privacy. And and then I started to really start looking at this more systematically in a paper that we published in Science some years ago. We developed a metric to try to understand, you know, can we place countries um, on a continuum of tight and loose? Is there any reason why cultures develop to be tight or loose? Is there, is there some important rationale for it? And what are the consequences? And that's where I started out. And we later then started looking at how can we use this lens, tight and loose, to understand within nation variation, like in the United States, the 50 states, how can we use it to understand organizations like United versus Uber? And how can we use it to understand social class and even our own parenting and household? Is there some kind of fractal pattern? That's a physics term of like recurring, repeated pattern across different scales uh, in terms of the antecedents and the consequences of, of the strength of norms across human groups. And that's what I talk about uh, in the book. Okay, what, what are some examples that people might be familiar with? What are some countries or some cultures that are particularly tight and some that are particularly loose? Sure. So in, in the data that we published, we could see that places like Japan and Singapore, um, China, um, places like Germany and Austria tended to veer tight. Uh, and cultures like New Zealand and the Netherlands and the Ukraine and Brazil tended to veer loose and all sorts of variations in between. And, and I do want to say that you can zoom into any country and find exceptions. So we can see Japan is rather tight, but there's some context where people kind of loosen up. They're almost like allowed to loosen up in certain contexts, like drinking with your supervisor. <laughs> and in other contexts, you know, even when there's looseness, like in New Zealand, which is pretty loose, there's some context where there's pretty strict rules. Like, for example, in New Zealand, it's really important to be egalitarian. And so people who try to sort of uh, look better than others, uh, get shot down. It's called the tall poppy syndrome. So, mm. you know, I like to say that we can sort of use this as a microscope. Like you can zoom out and see differences across nations, but you can zoom in and find some interesting exceptions. Um, and so that's really kind of where we started, is just trying to put a metric on t the strength of norms. Do people agree on this in their countries? And it turns out they do, that people in the U.S. agree that it's a generally loose place. Uh, even though we can find pockets of tightness and vice versa in a place like Japan. Um, and, you know, what we were really interested in is why do these um, differences develop in the first place? And when I was selecting the nations to be included in this study, I was actually selecting them so that I had variability in what I thought was going to be a driving factor. And these countries that tended to be tight and tended to be loose, they didn't share any common geography. They didn't share a common religion or tradition or language. But what I found in general is that the tightest of our countries, and this applies to other levels of analysis, tend to have much more threat. So they have much more ecological threat, meaning like from Mother Nature, many more natural disasters, famines. And they also have more human-made threat. They had more invasions over the last hundred years. They had um, more pathogens that had higher population density in general, you know, compared Singapore with 20,000 people per mile for, with mm -hmm. um, New Zealand that has 50 people per square mile. In those contexts, and this is what's really, I think, interesting about the logic, is that when you have a lot of threat, these are collective action problems that you can't solve on your own. You need rules and you need punishments to keep people from defecting in these circumstances. In other words, you need rules to survive in these kinds of contexts. So there's a certain logic that suggests that when there's threat, that you need strong norms uh, for survival. And 
we've actually since then, because the science paper was correlational, we've done a lot of modeling to try to look at this. Now, these are artificial societies, <laughs> but we could see that when you increase threat, that you see an increase in tightness, that it's an adaptation that happens um, almost immediately. Um, and so this is something we've also seen, by the way, with our neuroscience research. Recently, we, we published a study in SCAN that looked at how threat is affecting coordination. And we could see that when there is an in-group threat, like a country that you think is going to be, you know, possibly invading you, we can see that people coordinate much faster on other tasks and, and their brains become more synchronized. So it's fascinating to see, you know, how in general, of course, you know, that's not the only predictor of tightness. There's other predictors. And of course, there's all sorts of interesting exceptions. Um, like Israel is a good exception of a place that's rather loose, but pretty threatened. For, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I do think it's an important part of cross-cultural psychology that uh, I think is a really important aspect of the field, which is that culture isn't random. It tends to evolve for good reasons. Yeah, this is the best part to me. Like the idea that, you know, these are collective action problems uh, that you're talking about. And then, you know, norms are a way to, to coordinate and reach goals and to make decisions together. Um, and I, I think about... This in uh, the idea that um, this is often framed as conservative versus liberal, and I'm wondering what do you think of that? Is that um, how does tight versus loose compare to conservative versus liberal? The way yeah, that I mean, you, you like Jonathan uh, Haidt would talk about or something. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think tight loose is broader because um, it's about a cultural system. Typically, mm-hmm. you think about liberal versus conservative. You think about attitudes, and clearly, you can have liberals living in you know tight states and you, or tight countries. You can have conservatives living in loose context, too. I think there's some sense of, you know, like many humans like homophily, and they like to fit in the environment, that you do have some self-selection, but not always. And so, you know, tightness is really about a cultural system, um, and it affects those individual level variables. In fact, it has a connection with Heights' work. We could see in tight states that they tend to have more of the morality of you know, um, authority and community. Those are places where there, that have, where there's tight norms to help coordinate behavior. And in fact, the tight states do also have the, t- the more threat in the United States. They have more disasters, they have more pathogens, they have more food insecurity. And mm. the looser states that tend to have um, less threat, not all, but many, uh, tend to have that morality of fairness. But, you know, tight loose affects far more than just liberal versus conservative. It affects macro-level types of variables. For example, uh, it affects you know, indices of crime, it affects synchrony rates and uniformity, it affects self-control. These are all things that tight cultures have the corner, the market on. Uh, and loose cultures tend to have much more creativity and have more openness to change and, you know, adaptability and openness to different people. So there's, um, in a sense, you can see it as a broad theoretical framework that can incorporate um, some of those other theories. Yeah. Well, this is um, so like something that I, that I think is that I've talked about a lot or I've read about a lot and I haven't really talked about it yet is this idea of innovation uh, and rates of innovation and rates of change. Um, and you talk about this a good bit in the book about there's there are different rates of innovation within a tight culture versus a loose culture. If you could speak to that for a minute, that's really sure. interesting. Well, it's really interesting. You think about if you live in a context where people are kind of violating the rules a lot, like you see people kind of, you know, jaywalking. You see people doing weird stuff in libraries. You see that there's much more permissiveness. It kind of gives you license, in a sense, psychologically, to think outside the box in other contexts, like creativity. And we see a strong connection of loose norms and creativity. You see it 
at the national level, there was a great paper published in Administrative Sciences Quarterly uh, by Chow and his colleagues that showed that in actual crowdsourcing types of contests, that loose people from loose cultures are much more likely to enter those contexts in the first place. They have more self-efficacy, and they also are much more likely to win them. And they also found, really interestingly, that people who tried to innovate in tight cultures, like when they had these contests about coming from tighter cultures, that it was people from tighter cultures that did better. You know, they kind of knew the constraints of, like, what's going to be possible in those contexts. So, you know, and what's really interesting, we see that at the state level, clearly, loose states have much more creativity. Um, we see it even at the level of um, the brain. In, in our studies, where we look at, you know, how much do people detect social norm violations in the brain? We could see that the people who don't really notice them, who don't register them in terms of, like, frontal area as we're measuring their responses, they're way more creative on other tasks. <laughs> so they're, they're, when, they, when they don't notice constraints in their environment, they tend to not notice constraints in creativity types of context. Now, now with that said, I, I would say that I've written a lot about this more recently when it comes to organizational innovation, I think that there's this sort of Goldilocks you know, principle that I talk about in the book where you need a balance of tight and loose in many contexts, even if you need to veer tight or loose depending on your environment and those kinds of ecological challenges. Even something like innovation, for example, requires looseness. It requires people to come up with really crazy, awesome ideas. And you could see examples of all sorts of contexts where people can come up with great ideas but not implement them. You could see context where the reverse is the case. So, you know, I think the clear challenge in, in organizational context is for leaders to help people be more ambidextrous, to have a sort of balance of, of tight and loose when it comes to creativity. So that's my, my sort of more recent thought about how creativity is definitely connected with looseness, but that when it comes to really scaling up, which is an organizational question, then we need some tightness. Yeah, I mean, this is that... Um this is the a few good men argument, right? <laughs> like, uh, you need mm -hmm. me on that wall. Um, you want me on that wall. Like, this is it's this this balance that the United States is often trying to figure out. Like, uh, should the country be more like California? Should the country be more like Texas? You know, or should we do we? How much should we focus on security and conservative norm norms? And how much should we focus on freedom of thought and expression? And you know, being able to, to completely um, alter categorical, you know, understandings of the world. Like where's the balance and, you know, you need, you need, and, and I'm, you know, I, I assume, you know, the balance is you need the security to have the looseness, but there's like one is their antagonistic forces. Like does your research see them positioned as antagonistic forces or, or is, is this something that, um, you know, how do we go, how does I'm asking like nine questions at once, so I hope you figure this out. Um, <laughs> Fine. Like, like you know, how, you, how do you end up as a North Korea? You know, and is that necessarily bad? You know, are they is that a legitimate strategy for organizing a large group of people? And you know, go in the other direction, like you know, people go to Burning Man once a year, but then they go back to their jobs and like. Um, why isn't Burning Man just the way we live everywhere? Like, what is the, when you talk about this Goldilocks idea, like, what is the sort of push-pull antagonism of this? And 
and what are some of the pitfalls and what are those, some of the ways it gets balanced and so on? Yeah, I mean, it's such a fascinating question, and I spend the whole chapter talking about this in the book because, you know, what I'm arguing is that, yes, certain groups need to veer tight or loose for good reasons. The working class needs stronger rules, for example, because they could fall into poverty or they have to deal with dangerous jobs or they have dangerous neighborhoods. Like, it would be silly to say, let's be super loose in that context. And, and what we see is that there's big differences between the working class and the middle and upper class that we often neglect when it comes to tight loose. We, we tend to think about differences in terms of bank accounts. With that said, you know, and the same is the case of states or nations that veer tight or loose. But what I found in my data is a, is a pretty robust curvilinear relationship. That, that's to suggest that groups that get either really too tight, that start normatizing everything, um, like North Korea, um, for example, or groups that get really super, super loose. Um, this can happen sometimes when a top-down control has been taken out suddenly, like in Ukraine, for example. These mm. groups have really important, they have really serious problems also, because getting back to the function of norms, everything becomes really unpredictable. And, you know, Durkheim actually talked about this in terms of animic kind of suicide, like people wanting to escape because everything is just like totally normless. And on the flip side, you know, kind of more of the repressive types of suicide of like you're in a context where there's so many rules, you can't breathe. And actually in our data, when we look at um, suicide rates and blood pressure rates and depression and all sorts of other societal outcomes, we see that it's extremely loose and extremely tight types of contexts that have much higher suicide, much less well-being, much more instability. And actually, a lot of this principle of Goldilocks applies to companies. You know, United was arguably coming too tight. Uber and Tesla were arguably coming too loose. It makes sense for United to veer tight because they're an airline. We don't want them doing all sorts of weird things. But they were arguably getting too tight where people were following norms, just questioning them. And vice versa with places like Uber or Tesla, you know, they veer loose for good reasons. They're in a startup context. They're creative industries, but they arguably were becoming super unpredictable and also problematic. And, you know, I, I could see this also in the book. I talk about this when it comes to parenting. We know from research that parents that are really controlling and totally helicopter-like as compared to parents who are totally laissez-faire produce kids that are more maladaptive. And so you see the curvilinear there also, where, you know, it's that kind of balance of how do we, even if we have to veer tighter or looser, how do we sort of negotiate norm strength? And that's what I think is really exciting. I study negotiation and culture, and I've been starting to really apply it um, to the domain of tight loose in, in our households, in organizations. How can leaders bring people together who have different strengths, people who are coming from tight groups and need to be tighter, like auditors, you know, or people in manufacturing, and then the more creative side of people, of R&D, and bring them together to work together so that they can capitalize on the order and openness that each of them brings to the table. And there are examples I talk about in the book where some leaders have been able to strike this balance, what I call sort of tight, loose ambidexterity. Um, it's not like, a, okay, here's the recipe. You know, sometimes it has to do with bringing groups together and giving them an incentive structure to work together. Sometimes it's more sequential of having loose groups work and then follow up with tighter groups. So, and and it's, it's, a, it's a really clumsy process. I've interviewed quite a bit of people about who have tried to loosen up tight norms or tighten up loose norms as needed. And that's how I think about it, is that, you know, we need to harness the power of social norms. We invented norms as a species, that it's our great invention, and we can use them to our advantage to calibrate um, when norms are getting outdated in either direction, either tight or loose. Yeah. 
This is such good stuff. Um, I want to ask a few other questions before we head out here. Um, I, I had spoken about this with someone, and they told me to ask this question. And I, um, it's going to sound like some weird gotcha thing, but it's not. It's just it's funny <laughs> what you have to say. Um, they were talking about how. Um, well, I'll just ask you this plainly. The um, Cal, I guess you know, within the United States, California is one of our looser states. I guess we could say. Uh, I may be wrong about that, but it feels that way. Um, yeah, that's and, right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, um, you know, a lot of times there, um, there's this thing of like, uh, they have a norm of tolerance, but they seem to be intolerant of intolerant people. And it becomes this conundrum, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering like, you know, um, how does a loose culture deal with people who violate norms that that culture values? Yeah, well, this is a great question. And this is what I was speaking to earlier about domain specificity, you know, that every culture has tight and loose domains. What's interesting from my point of view is that the domains that tend to veer tight, even in loose culture, are domains that are really highly valued. So, for example, just like the California example, in the Netherlands, there's a very strong norm for tolerance. And so when people are not tolerant, there could be some repercussions. And that's a good example of, like, you can have a tight domain that's linked to the most central values in that particular context. Now, with that said, I don't think the punishments for norm violation in those contexts is nearly as severe as you'd see in the tight culture, like in Saudi Arabia or Mm. Japan. Um, So I think there's still, you know, the jury's out on this of like, okay, can we really call that, you know, this equivalently tight? I do think that there are definitely um, stronger rules in those domains. um, And there's clearly going to be domain specificity, but the question around punishment and ostracism and, all sorts of normative controls is, is, is really an interesting one because I do think that um, there's still more tolerance for intolerance as compared yeah. to in tighter cultures where of, of, in other domains. Yeah. And you're right. That's such a good answer. I love it. And the sanctions of course are just like, you know, public shaming versus uh, public flogging. Yeah. <laughs> like, versus just, uh, you know, kind of you're annoying me. I mean, I think that there are, you know, clearly going to be some examples where people do in the Netherlands. Um, there are, you know, people, clearly candidates who were very, um, political candidates who were very racist were getting really shot down. And so there's, there are repercussions. Um, and I do think that it's not, it's what's exciting is to try to f- think about what domains tend to evolve, like to be tight or loose. And what are the consequences in a loose culture for violating those norms? For example, privacy is a really tight domain in the United States. You know, we don't just show up each other's houses and start demanding, you know, to hang out with each other. (laughs) That would be seen as like anti-normative. Now, what's the punishments for that? Um, I think that domain evolves to be tight because it's a highly cherished value. So it makes a lot of sense. So we're doing a lot of research now on domain specific tightness and how we can can kind of expand. What are the profiles of domains of tight, loose? Why might they develop? I, I will say that what's interesting is that even though you could find these domains, when research that we've just finished in traditional societies with Carol Ember, you know, this is not a distinction type loose that applies just to modern nations, it applies to ancient societies. And we've been uh, coding like 80 to 100 ethnographies for tight loose. And we've been looking at this both in terms of domain specific, like socialization, gender, sexuality, funerals, all sorts of domains of life that ethnographers write about. And when we factor analyze the norm strength in these particular ethnographies, you see a very strong factor. Things tend to cohere pretty much in cultures. Even if you have some domains that might be tighter or looser, there's a strong factor of even in traditional societies. Uh, I'm excited. Peter Churchin and I, who is an evolutionary biologist at UConn, are starting to now 
plants and research to look at tight loose even further back in history and test some evolutionary principles around it with his new project on mathematizing history. So that's really pretty, pretty exciting. The, um, I wanted to, I only have two more questions here. Um, <laughs> I can talk uh, all day. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. Cause I, 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 I plan to pick your brain alive when I get a, a sure. some freedom here. But the, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about radicalization, terrorism, that sort of thing. And, uh, before we get into that specifically, I was really interested in, I think we all watched, I think in the United States, for me, it was like watching norms change and attitudes change about, um, um, LGBT rights that was really f- amazing to watch, like to be, to see everyone flip so quickly. And then, and again, it always, I think about people today who could, you could put into a time machine and take them back 12 years and they would like disagree with their own selves. You know, they would like, they would see the world differently across, uh, cause, cause obviously some sort of psychological transformation has taken place. Um, they have updated their priors across the board and, what they believe to be true, the attitudes they hold, their values. Um, so, and then we saw this, uh, and more more objectively, in what happened with the Arab Spring. So, if you could sort of just, I'm just going to so sit back and let you talk about it. I want to know, you know, from the lens of this tight versus loose, and the lens of of how norms shift. Um, what happened in the Arab Spring, and then what happened in the aftermath of it? Yeah, it's such a great question. I mean, I think. This is an example, in my view, of like how culture really needs to be taken more seriously in foreign policy to help make predictions about, you know, um, the kind of rapid pendulum shifts we see around the world, whether that's Arab Spring, whether that's the rise of ISIS. Like, you know, in these contexts, of course, they're multiply determined. There's a lot of reasons why they happen, but culture is clearly one of them, and norms are very central uh, as well. And with Arab Spring, what was really interesting, it's something I call um, autocratic recidivism. Um, sort of a relapse, so to speak. And it's pretty predictable from the point of view of Goldilocks. You know, you had a very um, tight culture, very top-down control. Autocrats are known for getting people to distrust each other uh, because if they trusted each other, they would get rid of the autocrat. (laughs) So it's a very functional way of thinking from a, you know, kind of a, you know, psychology perspective from autocrats, you know, how they run countries. When you take out an autocrat and that kind of system, even if you can organize and synchronize with people in your society to do that, what happens often, uh, and this is shown in some of our computational models, we have some data on the ground after Mubarak was ousted, what you see is that um, things tend to shift to the opposite extreme, to total disorder, to total chaos, to total normlessness, to to extreme looseness. And that's really what we could see happening in contexts like Egypt and many other places. Tunisia was an exception, and I can talk about why that might be the case. But really what we could see is that when you go from an extreme from tightness to extreme looseness, it's untenable. It's something that people feel is, you know, something um, that psychologically is aversive. It's uncertain. It's unpredictable. And on the ground after Mubarak was ousted, I could see in my surveys that when people reported feeling the sense of normlessness, that was predicting their their support for Salafi government and 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 the Muslim Brotherhood. What you see is this kind of autocratic shift, this, this pendulum shift back to, a, you know, an even more autocratic regime. Now, of course, <clears throat> you know. Um, it's a miserable existence to, to, you know, it's not as though people are choosing this 
because they want autocracy. It's just that there's not, compared to having a normalist context, that seems more safe and more comfortable. And we see that all around the world. You know, we could see that with with ISIS, for example, many people don't realize that they were actually welcomed in many areas in Iraq. And we have some data to support Mm -hmm. that, that in these cases also, extreme normalistness, no way to coordinate, huge amount of security problems. ISIS came in, um, at least at first, and provided um, they provided food, they provided services, they provided justice um, systems to help people resolve petty disputes. They provided norms for social order. And of course, that went in a different direction as they became extraordinarily tight. Uh, but I just think it's important to recognize that when there's anime and looseness, extreme looseness, like you see in Arab Spring or in ISIS, uh, or even in the Philippines, people support Duterte in large part because he's providing a social order where there was a vacuum. This makes sense, and we need to be on the lookout for that. We need to be on the lookout now with, yeah, we think we defeated ISIS, but I wrote an article recently that suggested, you know what, we need to keep our radar on norm strength in different contexts because they will, other forces will rise and fill vacuums um, just like we've seen in the past. Well, um, and how does this, I mean, well, I, I, I'm kind of going all over the place because this is something that has been a really big mystery to me. I just, you know, you look at... Um, I'm thinking of the the individual who's caught up in one of these things, like what happened with in the United States with LGBT norms, and what happened in Egypt. Uh, it, like I'm thinking about the individual who's caught up in, let's say, the Arab Spring, because I've talked about the other thing so much. And the Arab Spring has had has had a lot of coverage on the show, but like I'm thinking about in it, an individual brain that's caught up in this thing, um, and they're going from one. Um, one's uh like matrix of normalcy to another like like i feel like you there has to be some resistance to ch- to updating your your very model of what is and is not normal and and then and then what flows either upstream or downstream from that like your attitudes about what should or should not be and then what you do and do not value and then what you do and do not believe like this this complete mm-hmm. rearrangement of like your uh, umwelt, you know, like the what's going on, like what if you could sort of take me and, and, and or talk about it any length you wish, like how does an individual brain deal with this type of thing? Like, and not talking about the at, from the group level, but at the individual level, when you go from you're under rule of an autocrat and then you go through a revolution and then you return to something that's very tight again, like how is the brain dealing with that? Yeah, I mean, we, this is like another one is we have no idea. <laughs> in a systematic way. But, I mean, we do know from research by people like Adam Galinsky that when people feel a sense of like they have no control, they start seeing patterns in the world. They start wanting to see patterns in the world. They, they want some kind of mechanisms to help them feel in control. And I think that, you know, it's also just a hierarchy of like, what are you willing to accept? Like, do you want to have order? and security and food, or do you want to have, you know, a democracy? And I think what we fail to mm. realize is that to the extent that there's no meso-level structures connecting people so they can trust each other, um, that when you have autocrats that are taken out, it often goes to that other extreme where, you know, people don't trust each other, they can't coordinate, things are getting really dangerous, and it makes sense in those contexts. You know, many of us would, you know, flip the switch, like you're saying, like, and say, you know what? the alternative is better. You know, I mean, Mm. I think, again, this is, there's not much data on this, but I would suggest that it would make a lot of sense from a survival perspective. Um, And I think that 
in Tunisia, what's interesting, and I wrote about this a little in the book, you know, there, this is a context where there were more meso-level type of institutions, meaning like there were civic associations where people, strangers, could actually connect with each other and where they could build some kind of trust and social capital. So when you take out that autocrat, you don't have that huge cultural vacuum. You have some sense of connectivity in the population. And, you know, this is kind of how we model it in our computational land. We look at the kind of uh, meso-level structures that exist or lack thereof and how the implications of this for autocrats taking over again after their ousted. Um, and, you know, I just think it's an important principle and it's a concept that's taking off in Europe and to some extent in the U.S. is this notion of synchrony. Like we need some sense of synchrony. I mean, we're talking about large-scale type, types of synchrony in terms of, you know, building houses and roads and, 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 and having security like with police. It's easier to synchronize to take out a leader than it is to do those kinds of large-scale functions. Yeah. So I think that um, studying you know, societies and brains and everything from the role of synchrony is really a fascinating um, direction. Yeah. And, so, you know, I think it's interesting in the book, I talk about how, you know, same with the Goldilocks of tight loose, like too much synchrony and too little synchrony is problematic. And we can see that with brain research that some diseases, you know, are found because there's too much synchrony between areas of the brain and some are the opposite. There's not enough yeah. synchrony across the brain. Um, so synchrony is a really interesting and incredibly important concept. So when, as you write in the book, if a culture collapses, radicalization steps in. But then you also talk about, and this will be, and we're going to get into uh, what, what can we do about all this, and that would be where I'll sum everything up. But I'll, before okay. we do that, one last question about this is, you know, we're seeing this right now, the surge in populism, surge in nationalism, uh, and then there's all this debate right now in the United States about immigration policy. How does the lens of tight versus loose see all that? Yeah, I mean, I think what is is really important to understand is that these rise in populist leaders um, and mesmerizing personalities is not really that unique. It's nothing unique about this time period, about this particular cultural moment. You know, what we can see in our data is that when people feel threatened, whether it's real or imagined, um, just like they do in, in the country level when they're facing diseases or disasters, they want stronger rules and they want more autocratic, independent leaders to help lead the way. It's something that's kind of deeply evolutionary, as I mentioned, and we could see that when you increase that, you, you tighten norms. And what we could see around the world, with, in the U.S. and France, for example, is that people who feel threatened by ISIS or globalization or immigration they tend to think their cultural contexts are too loose, too permissive, and that in turn is affecting their vote for Trump or Le Pen or other populist leaders. And, you know, what's interesting about the dynamic is that leaders can also play into that. They're kind of good cultural psychologists. They activate and amplify and exaggerate threat, and they target groups that are objectively threatened, like the working class, and they use that to gain popularity. And so what's important is that this is a principle that, you know, from an evolutionary point of view works when threat is real. <laughs> you know, this is important to tighten up when, when threat is objective, but what we have more and more is the inability to detect what's real, what's imagined, what's fake. In the lab, I can activate fake threat and it tightens people almost immediately. It doesn't mean it's going to last, but because it's a prime, but I think it's just a really important principle. Um, and it suggests that we need to really kind of negotiate our perceptions of threat. I mean, there's also some interesting data that by Alicinia at Harvard that's been showing how really kind of out of tune people are with actual immigration issues 
in terms of crime, in terms of what kind of jobs people are taking, not just in the U.S., but in Germany. As long as we stay in our echo chambers and we don't have these kinds of fact checks, then, then people can really objectively or subjectively feel threatened, and that drives their desire for greater tightness and, and autocratic leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, God, we're so weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something that's been happening throughout history. I mean, what, this is what's remarkable about it. It's not something that's like unique to now. Uh, I think that there are, as Thomas Freeman says, you know, there's just enormous amount of disruption around the world and that people are feeling threatened. And I think we do need to actually develop in the loose context of the United States, more platforms and programs and, and structures to help people who have been blindsided by globalization is objective threats, but there's also an incredible amount of subjective threat. And then you could see, again, you know, leadership having, um, you know, uh, playing into that as well and, and stoking that. We just developed a new threat dictionary. We're in the process of that and to try to analyze speeches for how much they focus on threat. And we plan to be looking at how that's affecting you know, the brain and behavior and so forth, because this is what we see more and more, uh, in our, you know, in our politics. So it's important to start studying it from a sort of psychological perspective. Yeah. So in an all-around way, like, what do we, can we start doing now, both as individuals and institutions, to try to make a better world, knowing what we know now about tight versus loose cultures? You know, I think it's interesting. You know, we sort of think a lot about cultivating intelligence and, and emotional intelligence, and, and I have been in, you know, my whole career has been focused on trying to develop um, theories that really help us become more culturally intelligent. And so I think CQ is really something that this new globalized era we really need to have a lot more of. And, of course, there's a lot of different ways that cultures vary, but tight loose is a really important one, and it's based on this very fundamental um, product of human nature, which is norms. And I think, you know, the first item is just to really understand you know, this difference and, and understand what it confers to groups in terms of order versus openness and why those things are both valuable in their own right uh, and why they develop, why certain cultures evolve to be tight or loose for good reasons, I think helps us to have more empathy and, and it helps us to have less judgment. You know, I, uh, people often say that they think it's absolutely preposterous that you can't chew gum in Singapore or bring large quantities into the country um, and it's like, you know what, well, what if you were born in Singapore and you lived in a place there were 20,000 people per square mile? You know, what was happening in the late 80s is that people chew gum and they were tossing it on the ground and it was causing massive health problems. It was causing trains to, and elevators to malfunction because gum was wadding up these sensors. And so Lee Kuan Yew just said, you know, guys, I think we're going to have to ban gum. You know, this is a tasty treat. You know, we need to prioritize security over freedom for this particular issue. Now, I'm not going to say I agree with all of his policies for sure, but it just suggests that, you know, sometimes we can look at puzzling behaviors through a new perspective of why they make sense in that context um, and why we, you know, are the way that we are. Like, you know, often culture is, you know, the first item in the agenda for CQ is to understand how we've been socialized to adopt certain norms and values and how if we were, again, accidentally born somewhere else, we might have a totally different worldview. So I think it, it, it's important for just being able to diagnose Differences, understand their consequences, and understand why they developed to, to activate empathy. Um, and, of course, I think it's important because we need to understand tight loose to, to enact change. Like, as I mentioned, I think one of the agenda items is to you know, harness norms, to uh, loosen tight norms when they become outdated, and to tighten loose norms when they're not functioning well. And that requires an understanding of, 
of the concept and its consequences and, and, and differences in rates of change in different cultures and ways that cultures change when it comes to different behaviors. So I would just say that overall, the broader point is to try to uh, increase our cultural intelligence. And this, 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 in fact, affects not just travelers and global leaders, but affects dipl- it should affect diplomats and it should affect or, you know, organizational leaders. And even as parents, as we're trying to like help our kids understand norms and, and, you know, negotiate norm strength in our households, you know, how we can actually talk about it and use the language um, to, you know, to better our world, because it starts with understanding the frame and the language and talking about it. And um, that's what I was excited to do with the book was to take a lot of research and try to make it more accessible. Many of us are <laughs> scientists are completely inaccessible to a general audience. And, you know, this was a, a work of, of love and pain, <laughs> but it was really <laughs> exciting to really, you know, this is my first book for a general audience um, because I've been, you know, in an ivory tower. And finally, you know, I wrote this book for my dad, who's an engineer, who said, I can never understand what you're doing. And I said, okay, Pop, I'm going to write a book for you. And every chapter went through the pop test. And, you know, he finally understands what I do. And I think it's really important that scientists and uh, practitioners and policymakers are in more dialogue around these things. Um, we live in our own cultural worlds in them themselves. And it's, you know, it's something that I think we need to bridge more of that, those, those different worlds um, to get this kind of academic information out there and useful for, for policy and, and elsewhere. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about in this episode, head to youarenotsosmart.com. You can also get all the past episodes of this show at youarenotsosmart.com, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, and soon, soon on Spotify and other places, basically anywhere you can get a podcast, you can get the old episodes of this show. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The interstitial music is by Incompetech. This music is by Banjo Apocalypse. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by going to Patreon, patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any level will get you the show ad-free, but at the higher levels, you can get t-shirts and signed books and posters and other stuff. Follow the show on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. Follow me at David McRaney and head over to Facebook and join the gigantic Facebook community for the show. Around a quarter of a million people are checking in with the show on Facebook. It's just slash you are not so smart. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people 
I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.